0: Free combat check! Thanks for tuning in. When you were a kid, did you watch the movie Top Gun and wish you could fly upside down over Russians, giving them the bird while your co-pilot takes a Polaroid picture? Well, my guest today chased his Top Gun dream to fly fighter jets. During this interview, he will share how to become an officer and a pilot. You will hear some of the differences between being on active duty versus the National Guard. You will also hear about his first mission in Afghanistan. On top of that, he will explain how he went to school while in the military, as well as sharing words of encouragement and motivation for chasing your dreams. And yes, you will hear some Top Gun references. Enjoy the show. Steven, thank you very much for being here, man. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day and multiple jobs that you have. Come do this interview and help people out to understand what it's like to be a fighter jet pilot. My pleasure, Sebastian. My pleasure. So what years were you in the military or when did you sign up and why did you initially join?
1: Okay, so I signed up in the Air National Guard back in my senior year of high school in 2000. Never joined the active duty. I went straight into the Air National Guard and enlisted, I don't know, place in Montgomery, Alabama. Been there ever since. Not necessarily in Montgomery, but in the Air National Guard. So it's been over 19 years of service so far, both mixed in the enlisted side as well as in the officer side.
0: So what's your MOS?
1: Uh, Air Force-wise, we use the, what we call an Air Force specialty code, which is pretty much similar to an MOS. But right now, my the core job that I have is I'm an F-16 fighter pilot. And so I've been uh, flying this specific jet since 2004 when I began my initial training and been flying pretty much the same airplane ever
0: since. What unit are you assigned to since you were in the Air Guard?
1: Right now of South Carolina Air National Guard, the 169th is the fighter wing, and then below that uh, we have them broken up into squadrons. So the 157th Fighter Squadron, and that's uh, based out at McIntyre Joint National Guard Base, uh, just outside of Columbia, South Carolina.
0: And while you're home, you guys have a specific mission set. Can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the F-16 is kind of the jack-of-all-trades type of airplane, so we pretty much do almost every role... That a fighter jet could fulfill. So, stateside, what we have right now is pretty much the alert mission. We've got jets that are on 24 7 alert. What that means is there's the Homeland Defense mission. And, you know, just in case somebody wants to attack the U.S. or a 9 11 type situation, we have jets that can get airborne in 15 minutes, go after whatever task uh, the commanders need us to go do. So, intercept other aircraft, identify aircraft that are not supposed to be flying within a certain chunk of airspace. But all the jets have live missiles on board and they have bullets in the in the gun and they're ready to execute that mission at a moment's notice. The other ones that we do is we're always on a pretty much a cycle to go deploy. Every twenty months or so we'll be tasked to go do something somewhere, whether it's somewhere in the Pacific or if it's in the Middle East in a combat zone such as in our you know Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan uh, wherever the case may be, we'll go deploy there. So close air support is the, is the big one that we support uh, on a routine basis if we're going to the desert. But our primary mission set is they call suppression of enemy air defenses. So we go protect fighters and bombers that are going to go into a target area. We're going to help protect them from any type of surface-to-air missiles, try to suppress them in, in a way that our guys won't get shot down by any of those, those
0: missiles. So you guys do multiple things overseas, and how long are your cycles between deployments?
1: Yeah, so the Guard is different in many ways than active duty Air Force, and they're very similar in many ways as well. So our deployment cycles are pretty much going to be around the same time frame, about every 20 months or so. The active duty fighter units right now are currently deployed for about six months at a time, and then they'll come back home and spin up through the training cycle. The Air National Guard units that have that alert mission that I just mentioned, they'll deploy for about 90 days, and they'll come back home. And even in those deployments, we'll still cycle maybe half of our guys to split that 90-day deployment into two. So you're looking at about 45-day deployments for guys. So it's not too bad, not too bad at all. And It enables guys to get into the fight. It enables them to not miss that much work. Uh, from their employers if they're, you know, part-time guardsmen. And then it also enables us to continually train more and more because we're at home and not deployed as often.
0: Yeah, it seems like a lot better balance. Just like Ranger Battalion, we had about 90 to 105 day deployments, which I very much liked because you'd go there, give it everything you got, and then come back home and get ready to go again. If it's too long, it starts dragging out, mistakes start getting happen because people get tired or bored of it. So that sounds pretty cool, like a, a very good time period to go out. Yeah, it
1: certainly is, too. And, you know, the big one, too, is, you know, we don't have to miss an entire football season.
0: That's the most important thing.
1: SEC country.
0: No, no, we're talking about real football here, Chicago Bears, man. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course. As far as the short deployments, another benefit is for family.
1: Even 45 days is a long time to be away from family, but six months is an incredibly you know long amount of time. And I know, you know, some of your audience – Done the full army combat deployments of a year and years past, up to 15 months, and that's just an incredibly long time. So, being in the guard has the ability to keep connected with your family just a little bit more, and and so the family life's you know really important. And in the guard, there's a lot more members that are older, more likely to have you know families, you know multiple kids, and so it really does allow the opportunity to simultaneously serve your country and still serve your family.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. You're trying to become a pilot on active duty. You may not have as much time with your family, and you cannot have another job.
1: Yeah, that's correct. I and mean, if you're, it's the same as in the army. If you're, you know, active duty, I mean, that's your full time job. Uh, right now, because I'm the Air National Guard, as a traditional Guardsman, the military is a part time job. Depending upon which career field that you're in, you know, sometimes you only work one weekend a month, and maybe go temporary duty or TUI a couple times throughout the year which isn't required at all. It's just you go because you want to go. If there's other jobs like myself, we have a little bit more of a requirement in addition to the one weekend a month. We also have to fly our jets about six times a month to maintain our currencies because there's so many of those things that we have to maintain that it's a skill set that if you don't continually practice, they start to diminish. Because I'm only going to work at the Guard maybe six to ten times a month, and again, that's kind of flexible, I still have to have another source of income, so that's where I have other avenues in which to supplement, you know, the military income, you know, comes into play. So a lot of people have jobs outside of the military while they're serving in the National Guard
0: or National Guard role. What is the process to become an officer? So the main
1: thing in the Air Force is you're going to have to have a degree. You're going have to have a bachelor's degree in anything. I mean, it could be from engineering, it could be finance, it doesn't matter. I was a commercial aviation uh, degree type of guy because flying is what I wanted to do, so I spent all my time in college learning how to do that. So that's one. You also have to take an Air Force officer qualifying test, and that's the same test regardless if you're going straight into the reserves, the Air National Guard, active duty Air Force. You have to take that test. And I quit that one to kind of be like taking the SATs again. There's several different sections of the test, but it just measures you know, some of your – cognitive abilities your analytical skills your verbal communication that sort of thing so that was going to have to be the the other test and then there's just an application process and i can't speak to how those application processes are The same or different amongst the three different means in which to become an officer. And those three different means I'm referring to is the Air Force Academy, ROTC, the Reserve Officer Training Corps, or Officer Training School. I'm sure there's an application process for each one of those. And when I got commissioned in the Guard, I certainly had to go through an application process to just get hired to become a pilot. So those are the three big ones. Again, having the college degree, taking that AFOQT and then running through a, an application process to go through one of the 3 commissioning sources.
0: Once you get selected after your interview, what is the pipeline to become a pilot? Is do you go straight to pilot school, do you go through basic, what do you have to do first?
1: Yeah, so the most basic training is all done through your commissioning source. So you'll do some form of it in those three ones that I just uh, just explained. And then after that, so having a physical, you got to pass first class or flying class one physical. The Air Force is going to put you through because you got to make sure that you can see both, uh, you know, having 2070 vision, I think is what it is right now, you know, with correctable down to 2020, color vision, and then blood work, yada, yada, all that stuff. Once you pass that, then you'll start the, the flying pipeline. And right now you're looking at about 12 months from start to finish from having no knowledge of flying all the way to having your air force pilot wings during the whole pilot training pipeline about six months into it you're gonna go through what they call a track select and during that track select they kind of choose all right hey are you gonna go down the fighter or bomber path or are you gonna go to the we'll call it the heavy path the ones where you might be flying you know tankers or cargo aircraft So that happens six months in. And then at the 12-month part, once you get your Air Force wings and you find out your assignment on what kind of aircraft you're going to go fly afterwards, then that goes through more training to go learn a specific type of airplane. Intermixed in there as well, too, you're going to go through a land survival school. You're going to go through a water survival school. If you're a fighter guy, you have to go through some centrifuge training. What a centrifuge is is one that puts you through these G-force tests to make sure that you're able to sustain uh, G-forces. Uh, G forces are those, the, like you're in a roller coaster and you kind of feel that your body becoming heavier. That's essentially you're increasing the number of times of gravity on your body. So all in all, by the time that I left to start all my training, it, it took me two years and five months before I was fully qualified fighter pilot.
0: Before they gave you your leather jacket, aviators, <laughs> your yeah. jeans, yeah, before, well, dog tags. <laughs>
1: all of the above to fill that uh, that top gun role.
0: Your Kawasaki. Got <laughs> you got it. That's
1: it. So it's a long training pipeline. You know, I kind of equate it to special forces and some of those career fields, it's a long time before you finally get set to go into your unit and start more training to make sure you're
0: fully mission qualified. The pipeline is about 12 months, but with every other course and everything you have to do, it's about 2 years. You bet. You said there is a test you have to take that puts a lot of force on you. Is it similar to what astronauts have to do before they go to space?
1: Yeah, they sure do. Same same thing, same thing. That whole centrifuge training, you bet. And they'll run through this because the F-16 and, and several of the other uh, fighter jets are all capable of pulling up to nine Gs in that aircraft. And so before you go jump in that airplane, they want to make sure that you are capable of pulling those Gs. So they give you some training techniques on proper breathing. They give you the, you wear this, anti-G exposure suit or anti, they call it a G suit. You know, that's going to be able to squeeze your legs, squeeze your abdomen. The combination of all this training, they want to make sure you're good to go before they actually put you in that aircraft. Because we've had problems before. They have this thing called G lock, this G induced loss of consciousness where you lose all the blood out of your head and essentially you pass out. So passing out while flying is not a good thing. And it's led to a lot of deaths over the years because people will essentially take a nap while they're flying the airplane, and then that aircraft, and then impacts the ground.
0: Yeah, that's scary.
1: But with proper training, proper uh, techniques, and so forth, it's something that's completely doable. But it's something you have to be conscious of. And there's some people who can't pass that uh, that training in the centrifuge, and they end up not flying fighter jets. They'll still go on to fly other aircraft, but it's not in the high G jets. Normally, you won't do that training until. After pilot training, I'm trying to think. Actually, in some places, though, you'll do it before, at that six-month part. They'll put the guys through centrifuge. So you can still go on and, and graduate and get your, get your wings. You won't be kicked out of the Air Force if you can't pass that training because you're still an asset. You still can fly an airplane. It's just that you're just not going to fly the fighter jets.
0: What other type of aircraft can people fly?
1: The whole arsenal of things. Uh, so all the bombers, the uh, tanker aircraft, the ones that are able to do air-to-air refueling, your C-130s, C-17s, C-5s, those type of aircrafts. The Air Force actually has some helicopters, too, that are mostly associated with uh, combat search and rescue, the ones that'll be uh, taking the PJs, or the pararescue men, uh, from place to place. There's a wide assortment of aircraft that the Air Force has in its arsenal.
0: Once you do get your wings, what is the normal training cycle like? So
1: once you get home from that, uh, that initial training, you know, I spent about seven months learning to fly the F-16 out in Phoenix, Arizona. Then come back home, and then I'll put you through maybe another two- or three-month process, again, called mission qualification training. And that training there is just to make sure that now that you're home, now you're learning those specialty missions that each unit has. And previously, I had mentioned the SEED unit, that Suppression and Air Defenses. You don't get a whole lot of training in that during your initial training, and that's when you go home and you really fine-tune that skill set. So about after three months when I got home, then I finally became a fully mission-qualified pilot. That mission qualification then enabled me to go on deployments and execute downrange as required. My first trip when I got back from all my training in 2005, I deployed in 2006. I went to Iraq, been my first trip down there, downrange, doing close air support, uh, supporting all the uh, Army, Navy, Marines, pretty much everybody out on the ground during their mission sets.
0: Can you tell me about your first mission out there?
1: My Afghanistan's first mission was probably one of my most interesting missions to me that I had throughout my flying career thus far. The first mission out the door, they call it your local area orientation. You fly as a wingman on that sort, and you fly along with somebody who has been there already, who's flown multiple times in-country, who kind of has the lay of the land already. So when you take off on that mission, your goal is to just figure out how the operation works. I was in Kandahar at that time. And so it was figuring out the Kandahar airport, how you taxi to the end of the runway, how your jet gets armed up when you take off, who are the different controlling agencies that you talk to, what portions of airspace do you get assigned, where are all the refueling tracks located. You kind of hope for it to be a little bit of a benign mission because everything is going to be so new to you. You just get inundated with all of this information, this new setting. So I'm working through all of that. Anyway, 45 minutes after takeoff, we go to our first refueling track. Uh, We meet up with the tanker. We get all the gas that we need. And in the process of that, the air controllers contact us and say, hey, our our mission's been changed and we're now gonna go talk to a new JTAC. Uh, So the guy on the ground that we do all of our communications with that's embedded with the unit that's on the ground. My flight lead contact, the JTAC, you know, normal check-in, of just saying, hey, here we are. So he checks in, and you know, Monster 3-2, Viper 2-3 is checking in on station. And the JTAC immediately fires back. He's like, Roger, Viper, no, this is Monster 3-2. We are currently troops in contact, stand by for line." So that troops in contact information, what does that mean to us? That means the guys on the ground are currently being engaged by the enemy, and now they're calling for our help. This is getting real, real fast. They're taking RPG hits. They've taken several casualties. They're saying guys have traumatic brain injuries taking place. They've got medevac helicopters that want to get into this cop to pick up the injured and get them out. But it's too hot. they got to take care of this enemy threat before these helicopters can get in. And now they need us to help suppress the enemy fire that is actively engaging our friendly forces. I mean, that was a lot to handle, and this JTAC is now directly talking to my flight lead, and he's not directly talking to me. And so he's feeding all this information to our flight lead and my flight lead. He's getting the big picture of what's going on, and I'm trying to listen and just try to pay attention to what's taking place, but everything's not matching up to what I'm seeing to what they're talking about. So for me, I'm trying to play catch-up. I'm trying to get a clue of all of these little things Kalats, they call them, essentially these little Afghan homes. I see them everywhere, and I know that we do not want to put any fires down on these colots, on these Afghans, the civilians, and so forth. So where it's it's difficult to discern where is the enemy located versus these civilians. It was a lot of work. The JTACs calling in, say, "Hey, we need suppressive uh, twenty millimeter down on this location. Twenty millimeter being the bullets that we have in our jets, so our jets capable of." Carrying about 510 rounds of these bullets, and we can fire those things at the rate of about 100 rounds per second. So we're going to put—we have the capability to put a lot of bullets down relatively quickly, but we got to put them down in the right location. So my flight lead's rolling in, and he's starting to do these—we call strafing runs or shooting the bullets out of the out of the gun—and he wants me to follow suit immediately. But I have no idea where he's going to be firing these bullets because the JTAC is directly talking to my flight lead. I finally get eyes on the target. I'm putting down suppressive rounds in addition to my flight lead's running low on gas. So he leaves me by myself to continue talking to the JTAC because he has to go get gas. I have more gas than him at this point. And then the JTAC's asking me to start putting a you know, 500 pound uh, JDAM, the GPS guy, to bomb down to finish up suppressing the enemy to get these helicopters in, which they need to get done fast. So I end up doing that. But anyway, to wrap it up, there was just a lot going on on that first mission uh, that I had in Afghanistan. Words from the JTAC after we landed was everything worked out the way that he wanted it to. we were able to suppress those fires. The Black Hawk's able to get in to pick up the casualties, get them back to you know the bigger hospital. And overall, from what we needed to do, our mission was a success that day.
0: What an exciting first mission, man! Things got serious really quick for you. It
1: did. It was a lot, but the training that we receive, you know, ahead of time was really prepared us, you know, for that moment. Again, sometimes it doesn't matter how much training you have. They always say that the plan is only as good until you, you know, get first contact with the enemy. But everything worked out.
0: When the adrenaline started pumping through, did you start to forget things that you were trained? Simple things, or were you able to focus a lot more and get it done?
1: You know, it wasn't anything that we really forgot to do, but sometimes, you know, at that moment, there was just so much that was happening that you had to take a little bit of a pause. It wasn't the training scenario where in the training environment, it almost seemed like I knew what was going to happen next before it even happened, because I've seen it, you know, so many times before here. But then as soon as you get in that scenario, wow, there's a lot of little differences or nuances that i couldn't necessarily predict what was going to happen next you know rarely we didn't train to the scenario all of a sudden just happening you know during our training missions it was there was a little bit of a lull time and things it was kind of a little bit slower paced but here it was rapid fire you know the helicopters are waiting on us now there's a sense of urgency going on people are actually taking rpgs dang you know actual lives are on the line here and so training wise you try to simulate that but sometimes you just can't simulate at all so a little bit of a pause you know was required because bombs were actually going to fall off the jets and they were going to explode and they were going to impact the situation you know whereas in training we're not dropping on actual people if we actually did train with actual ordnance, it was limited you drop a simulated bomb it's no big deal nothing's actually going to blow up but here it was a totally different story
0: you went live we do alive. live knowing you guys were there gave me the confidence that when we'd go out no matter what happened how ridiculous it got you guys would always sweep in there and just clean it up so i'm sure those guys on the ground really appreciated your actions even if it was your first one they had no idea they're just like that was really cool thanks for helping us out now the helicopters came in and saved people's lives
1: you know and after that too i wrote this long email to the JTAC and of course you know from their perspective they probably just think they're getting experienced guys to show up you know each and every time so once i told him the story of it being my first mission, and I'll, in that I wanted to do my job faster and better than the way I felt I did. He thought that that was pretty amazing to hear my side of the story and to kind of have that connection, hearing from my perspective, you know, after the fact.
0: Yeah, for sure. So when you were on deployment, you said that you guys would do close air support as well as taking out radars or other systems. For the special operations community, what did you guys do specifically?
1: Well, in an Afghanistan scenario, we would do the same thing, almost the same story that I just you know, explained. You know, if we were working with ODAs or the special forces teams that were there, they did much the same, just providing that overhead, you know, coverage. Uh, same thing too, if it was regiment that was going out on missions, our job up there was just to provide the same type of you know support with weapons that we had on board or utilizing our sensors and by sensors again that targeting pod essentially that camera on the ground to help them in any way possible for us didn't really change our mission set depending upon who we're working with if we're working for conventional forces we're going to be executing in the same manner that we would working with the special operations community but what could be different, though, is a, like in a non-Afghanistan type scenario, uh, one here where your Ranger Bros, we'll talk about the, the Ranger Regiment here specifically, when you guys go do your MLAT training for your airfield seizures, now what we can do and how will be able to support that type of mission is, again, we're going to utilize the same sensors and the same munitions uh, to make sure that you guys are able to execute your mission successfully. So in that scenario, for those who aren't uh, familiar with these airfield seizures and the way that the F-16 or any other fighter-bomb platform uh, could fulfill that role, uh, in a specific way, I'll try to describe it here too in in a little bit of a scenario setting. So the scenario is you guys are going to go seize an airfield. Well, this airfield is protected by surface-to-air missiles or anti-aircraft artillery. So those surface-to-air missiles and those anti-aircraft artillery could shoot down the cargo aircraft that are going to be airdropping all the Rangers in. Well, we can't have a bunch of C-17s loaded up with some high-speed Rangers get shot down. So our mission there is to make sure they don't get shot down. And how we can do that is we're going to have to locate and identify where those surface-to-air missile sites are located, or the AAA, the anti-aircraft artillery, where they're located, and then go make sure those are suppressed and/or destroyed before you guys show up on station. So utilizing the capabilities of our aircraft, we'll find where those things are located and then we'll go put bombs on them uh, to make sure that they're not a problem for you guys. And then once that uh, airfield is secure from those threats, that's when the Rangers will be able to show up, jump out of the aircraft and go accomplish your mission. And then we can stay there on station and fulfill then that close air support role that we just got done talking about. So that's just one mission that uh, the Rangers would do, but there's all sorts of missions that we could do with any of the other special operations objectives that may need to be met. Uh, you know, there's so many different mission sets on there depending upon who we're working with, whether it's high speed Navy dudes, high speed Army guys. Uh, we're there just to fulfill a role, and usually it's putting bombs on target.
0: Your mission set specifically provides a lot of fuel for that mission to be accomplished.
1: It certainly does. We're kind of an enabler to make follow-on objectives happen. You know, if you guys can't get into your target area safely, you know, that mission is going to be a no-go. So we do have a part to play, which is kind of exciting because you you guys get a lot of credit for the high-speed missions that you guys do. But we're just there to
0: ultimately just support uh, you guys in in the grand scheme of things. True, but the main guys can't do it without the support. Your role specifically plays a big part into the mission success.
1: It certainly does. You know, and everybody talks about this whole team concept, but it really is. You know, if we're going far, far away from home, it's going to require us to have the gas to be able to get there. So having the tanker support is a big deal. You know, you guys aren't uh, able to airdrop onto that airfield if you don't have the the cargo aircraft uh, support. You know, if we don't have the eyes in the sky, meaning from uh, those AWACS airplanes that have those big radar dishes on it, you know, making sure that there aren't any other enemy forces flying around, well, we couldn't fulfill that mission, you know, without them. So, big team concept in the military as a whole, no matter what you do.
0: Most definitely. Since we're talking about special operations, most guys get a lot of gear. They get a lot of cool things. They get uniforms, or duffel bags, they get different Gerbers, whatever. Just a lot of cool things. What do pilots get? That's really cool.
1: <laughs> I think you hit, alluded to it earlier. Uh, you know, our sweet leather jackets, our, uh,
0: our besides that, sunglasses. I mean, that's the understood. <laughs>
1: That's standard. We all know about that stuff. Uh, you know, we get some pre deployment gear. I mean, nothing too fancy for us. I'm going to get some bags, maybe some, some knives or camelbacks, you know, on, for pre deployment going out to the desert. Some of those <laughs> sweet Wiley X goggles.
0: Those things are um, amazing.
1: Yeah, that stuff's okay. We do, yeah, we have a lot of gear that we fly with and so forth. And just some of that gear, you know, pertains to the jet. Like I said, we wear these, this G suit that we have. Besides flying, it's not, there's not a whole lot of utility for it. The, we'll say, though, that we do have our flying helmet. We do fly with this helmet that costs around $120,000. And, that, yeah, that helmet is really enables us to complete our mission more efficiently and effectively. So the heads-up display that we have in our jets, kind of similar to ones that you see in cars these days, it pretty much just keeps your heads up. So you're looking forward to not having to look down inside the cockpit at things. That way you're constantly scanning on the ground for threats or scanning the air for threats. Well, this helmet is linked into like our radar and that target pod that we were talking about, so that where anywhere I look, I can cue my systems, sensors, and weapons. Uh, which just enables us to be more lethal when when we need to be. So that helmet comes at a, at a price because of how it's integrated into the aircraft itself. So I think it's a pretty neat piece of equipment, but not necessarily a, a piece of gear that I'm able to use for other reasons besides you know flying the jets. Like you
0: don't walk around Walmart or the grocery store with that helmet on?
1: No. <laughs> oh, man, I would totally look badass if I was.
0: That would be awesome. But you do have your aviators <laughs> and leather jackets, so you're good. I'm good to go there. As you're walking through the store trying to pick out your tea that you're going to fly around with?
1: Of course we fly with tea. We've got tea time,
0: of course. How annoyed do you get (laughs) when you spill this tea on your uniform because you bang too hard or someone calls you in and you have to go fly down and do something?
1: Well, you know, again, that's where training comes into play. So when you're a brand new lieutenant, you screw it up all the time. But when you're an experienced old guy like myself, you learn how to not spill.
0: You master. You have your pinky out, very proper.
1: Oh boy. Okay. So first of all, I want to make sure your audience realizes that we do not actually fly a T.
0: Or do you? No. Yeah, that's cool. Or do we? On top of the National Guard, you also fly for Delta Airlines.
1: I do as a pilot. I really don't have that many skill sets, so I know how to fly airplanes, and so it was kind of a natural fit uh, for me to go get a job that you know was flying airplanes as a part of it. So doing the commercial airline gig is pretty fantastic. The company is pretty large. it's over 14,000 pilots at Delta, and it's really military friendly. So when I have to go fill my military obligations each month or even if I deploy, the company just gives us that time off And because there's so many pilots, it's easy for the company to fill in additional pilots in our absence. Whatever it is that I need, the two jobs are are pretty compatible. Civilian companies, by law, have to give you time off to fulfill your military obligations. Guard-wise, depending upon who you work for, you aren't supposed to be punished for not showing up to work because you're doing your military duties.
0: That uh, can give you confidence in getting a job and not worrying about if they're going to make an exception for you because there's a law in place for that. There certainly is.
1: And you know, to an extent, it, it can be tough. Like I said, at Delta, we have over 14,000 pilots, so there's plenty of guys to fill in in our absence. But if you're working for smaller companies where you might only have 10 employees, if you leave for you know two weeks at a time to go do your military service, it could put stressors on that company. And you know legally, they have to allow you that time off. But, you know, for some folks, you really have to figure out, can you make that work? Is it really going to be a compatible job to where you could just leave, not be there? And that company you know, still fully functions on its own accord. So it could, it could be tough. But in my case, the airline was an easy job for me to do because it would be compatible. If I'm not there, the show will go on. But like I said, for other companies, then it could be a little bit more difficult to have happen.
0: On top of flying for the Air Guard as well as for Delta, you had an opportunity to go back to school. Can you explain how you went back to school, where you went, and what you did?
1: You bet. My life up to this point has been focused around aviation. So I've been living in this aviation and military bubble. Well, I kind of wanted to get outside of this bubble. I wanted to be able to expand my horizons and be able to learn all the things that I haven't learned up to this point that revolve around public service. So public service is pretty important to me and I wanted to be able to continue on serving the public when I'm done with the military. And I looked at going back to school as a means in which to help add additional tools inside my toolkit. I wanted to go get a public policy or a public administration degree. And I took some time away from both my jobs to go do this. When I say it took some time, I took a little bit of time. I was still working two jobs while going to school, but I was able to find a program that was only one year long. It was a full-time program, but it wasn't a two-year program like a lot of grad schools typically are. So I found the program I wanted to go do. I went through the whole admissions process in doing so and was accepted, which I thought was a pretty big deal. But one of the things, though, I had to take into consideration was being able to pay for it. If I was going to sacrifice to work my jobs full time, the financial side was a concern for me. I was able to help alleviate some of that financial burden by utilizing the post nine eleven GI Bill. And because I'm not active duty, I'm still in the Air Force part-time basis or still on the Air National Guard, and because I've made multiple deployments, I was able to utilize this GI Bill benefit to go back to school. And what that enabled me to do was a majority of the tuition was picked up part of the GI Bill and also utilizing something called the Yellow Ribbon Program, where there are some additional funds that are matched to help pick up the tuition costs. So in addition to just tuition, the benefit also enables you to receive BAH, that basic allowance for housing that most you know full-time military members get. So I was able to get that at the E-5 level, E-5 being just a, you know a pay grade. So I was able to offset the financial burdens by utilizing this program and going back to school on a full-time basis.
0: And the school you went to was Harvard.
1: It was, Harvard University. The university is composed of multiple different schools within the university, such as the law school... Harvard Business School, Harvard Medical School, but I went to the Harvard Kennedy School, which is their school of government. So they have a bunch of grad schools that are in addition to Harvard College, which is where all of the undergrads will go to pick up or earn their bachelor's degree.
0: Did you feel that going back to school was beneficial?
1: 100%. I think it's so important for continued education in anybody's life. So, therefore, yes, I'm going to say, yeah, absolutely beneficial. I want to say, continued education it doesn't necessarily have to be a degree program, but just by reading books that you're interested in, uh, regardless of the topic, I think just continually learning, t- continually pushing yourself to try to be better, keeping your mind sharp is so very important to
0: not only being successful, but just making yourself better. Definitely. It doesn't matter what profession.
1: Absolutely. No, it doesn't matter the profession. It's just, it's just a life thing, really.
0: It's the lifestyle choice as a human being. With all your experience in the military, what are some things you like and some things you do not like about the military as a whole?
1: What I like about the military is that it can put you into situations that will really push you in a direction that's going to force yourself to think about problem sets and problem-solving. You're going to be in you're potentially in combat scenarios or just in training scenarios that are going to test your mettle. They're going to put you into situations where you don't know the right answer, but you're forced to make a decision. They're going to put you into situations where you are the leader, the leader amongst men. And I say that in a general neutral way. There are so many of these different experiences that I've had personally in the military that I know that I just would not find in the civilian sector. So many dynamic scenarios in my past have really set myself up for success because I know that I am able to take a situation that I'm not necessarily familiar with, but I know that I can solve a problem. I've learned that all problems have solutions. I've learned how to keep calm under pressure and just be able to execute the mission at hand. So I think that's one of the best and greatest benefits that I've had. It's really character building it's increasing your leadership abilities in ways that you may not necessarily have known that you've had. Some people are like, well, I'm not necessarily a leader. Well, you know what? You probably are because there are situations to where you have had to make a you know, certain decision and you've had to influence other people to execute a plan or execute a mission those leadership opportunities aren't necessarily had in other places. So I think that's the biggest thing that I've taken away from the military. And, yeah, there's a lot of negatives in the military as well, too. You we know, there's a lot of time wasted doing military things that, you know, you don't necessarily want to do, but you kind of have to do it. But for the most part, I mean, overall, it's, it's a benefit. I mean, the, the things you gain from it outweigh any of the costs, in my mind.
0: So the juice is worth the squeeze.
1: It is. But then again, you know, that's just from my perspective. I think because I've had a certain job that I've had the experiences that I have had, that's my takeaway from it. You know, other people, depending upon what they do, may not necessarily have those similar experiences. But I think if you're one that's going to push yourself, you really want to test yourself, you can get a lot out of the military.
0: Especially if you want to get good at volleyball.
1: Oh, well, of course. I mean, a lot of people think so you can go join these amateur leagues and so forth, but you're not going to get anywhere, you know, as compared to, you know, being in San Diego, California, in the hot sun, wearing your, your jeans and your, <laughs>
0: your Exactly. Tags. So if you want to get good at volleyball, become a fighter jet pilot.
1: Become a fighter pilot. But if you really want to get, you should join the Navy. The Navy does way more than the Air Force does.
0: What type of person do you think should try to be a fighter pilot? Do you see similar characteristics in all the fighter pilots, or do you see a pretty broad range of people?
1: The type of person who should become a fighter pilot is the one who wants to become a fighter pilot. And not just a fighter pilot, but say any pilot in general. If you really want to go do it, then do everything you need to do to go make that happen. Now, there are some traits that you commonly see within the fighter pilot community. And I'm going to put most of my emphasis there because that's the community that I am in. And it's going to be more of your type A personality. It's going to be the person who's going to have that warrior spirit it's going to be the person that's not necessarily going to take no for an answer, but it's going to go find that solution. It's going to be the person who's willing to step outside of their comfort zone. Those types of traits are really what I see amongst the guys that I work with, the guys that I've been associated with over the years.
0: Those characteristics seem to be standard across all of the special operation communities from all the people that I've interviewed and people that I've ran across. It seems to be the norm.
1: It is. You know, we don't get the special operations label attached to us at all, but there are a lot of those traits are, you know, quite similar in many ways.
0: And what recommendations do you have for those thinking to try out? Studying for a test or getting physically in shape, what would you recommend them do?
1: My big thing is if you want to become a fighter pilot, and I say fighter pilot, if you just want to become a pilot in general, just take those necessary steps to get there. First of all, you got to find out how to go do so. The Internet is just a treasure trove of information. So you can look at that and figure out the different ways you know you want to go do so. But the big one is just go make it happen. If flying jets or flying airplanes is something you want to go do, then get after it. Go make it happen. If it's something that you're kind of unsure of, Well, those people don't really, you know, get around to to doing it. And then you're just one of those people who will always and forever say, oh, well, I thought about it. It seemed like it was neat, but I never did it. Okay, well, if you want to go do it, then go do it. You know, the only real limitation is going to be yourself. I don't mean to say that in a bad or negative way. I'm just saying that you just got to go make it happen, right? And that applies to anything you want to go do. You want to go ranger regiment? Well, figure out the steps and then just go make it happen. You know, there's going to be some preparation, there's going to be some steps and requirements to go do it, figure it out what they are, be glad to answer anybody's questions on how to go do that. You contact, you know, you, Sebastian, and you can put them in contact with me. But at the end of the day, you just got to go make it happen. And and I don't want to make it seem too easy, but you can make it happen. This is something that's totally achievable. It's not outside the realm of possibilities for anybody And I look at it almost the same way of, you know, somebody, a Green Beret or Special Forces. I look at the amount of training they do and the toughness of the physical aspect, you know, and the ability to shoot a rifle and all those things. I'm like, whoa, that's a lot of training. That's a lot of requirements. That's a lot of suck. I think it's way cool. I don't ever foresee myself doing it. But I know if I really wanted to, I could go do it. Even now, at my old age, I'm like, I could go do it. You know, in fact, what I'm thinking about now is I have so many buddies of mine who who I went to ranger school with or are our rangers that recently participated in the best ranger competition. And because my kid brother just competed in it this past April, multiple people were asking me, when am I going to go do it? Am I going to sign up next year? And at first, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, are you kidding me? No, absolutely not. That's a bad idea. But then, you know, after I think about it, it's like, you know, if I really wanted to, I could go do it. I just got to put in the effort. I know I could go do it. might not finish number one, but you're not definitely not going to finish number one if you don't think that you can. So it's one of those things, if you put your mind to it, you can do whatever
0: you want, you know, for the most part. Most definitely. Mind over matter. That's it. That is it. Well, that's great. Well, thanks again, Stephen, for coming and sharing your experience, stories, and the realities of being a fire pilot.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, just to kind of leave you on the one final note here is for anybody who's listening who kind of wants to go down that path, don't give up on your yourself. I mean, there's so many cool possibilities regardless of what it is that you want to do in life. If you just set the objective for yourself and to say, "Hey, this is what I want to go do," then find out, you know, what those steps are and go make it happen. One day at a time, you'll get there. And there, of course, there's so many things and hurdles that people in life just face on a daily basis. But one day at a time, you take care of whatever those problems are, you find those solutions, and, and you'll get there. And you'll be rewarded at the end. So, as I say, you know, nothing in life, you know, really comes easy. So you have to work at it.
0: Definitely. All right, man. Well, I really appreciate that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Sebastian. I certainly appreciate the opportunity to come talk to your listeners.
0: Do you take it easy and fly aggressive? as always to get more information about the process of joining go to precombatcheck.com subscribe to this podcast to hear from more current and former members of the united states military thanks for listening and stay tuned for future episodes